Acts chapter 2 this morning, if you would. <clears throat> Acts 2, and toward the end of the chapter is where we are going to be reading. <clears throat> Acts 2 is the account of the work of the Lord on the day of Pentecost as he uh, empowered the church in Jerusalem with his spirit and the preaching of the word of God went forth in boldness and in power and in the, the languages of the people that were there present that day and as a result of that great mighty work of the Lord about 3,000 souls were saved and ultimately baptized and then added to the Lord's church there in Jerusalem on that day. And what we're going to read, we're going to pick it up in verse number 41, and it's going to be an account, uh, just kind of a brief snapshot of what life was like for the believers at the church in Jerusalem in the first century. These are the years just following and, and really that first year following uh, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, this is Christianity as a concept was very new in the world. This was the first church functioning in a way that, that we would understand a church to be functioning. And, uh, and so we get kind of a, a glimpse or a view into what life was like in the first century for Christians in a church. So if you're in Acts 2 and you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of the scripture, I know you've already stood a few times and I'll try not to keep you on your feet more than another 20 or 30 minutes. All right, Acts 2, we'll begin reading in verse number 41. It says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we look into your word in these next few moments, I pray, Lord, that you would just guide uh, my heart, my mind, and my mouth to say only those things that you would have me to say. Lord, speak through me and use your word to impact our lives. Lord, help us to take the truth that we received from your word today and not only hear it and understand it and even believe it, but Lord, help us to practice it, to put it to action in our lives. And Lord, we know that we need your help to do that. I pray, Lord, that as a church, you would help us to really consider what is important and what you desire for us as we seek to serve you in these days in which we live. So, Lord, bless and work and use the message, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever been to one of those old world types of uh, museums or attractions where you get a little bit of a 
perspective of what life would have been like in a, in a previous time. Uh, I remember growing up, there were a few times that we went to a place not far from where we lived there in Wisconsin. It was called Old World Wisconsin. It was a neat little place where they had actually taken buildings from some of the farmsteads and things around the state and kind of, uh, they, they had brought them there and, and kind of replicated what the farm would have looked like at the time. And you would actually go and visit these different places and, and they would tell the story of the family that had settled in, in Wisconsin and how they kind of uh, went about life there and, and setting up life. And they would have the, maybe the house there and the barn and they'd, they'd have it set up uh, like they did back in the day. And they'd have people dressed up like different members of the family. And you could go in there and, and maybe see the, uh, the, the wife that would be there uh, cooking a meal over a wood stove. Or you'd go out into the, the barn and you'd see a man that was, was working maybe shoeing a horse or milking a cow or doing something like that. They had these little towns set up there where you could go and see the general store and, and the blacksmith and the different things. So you got a little bit of a feel for what life might have been like, you know, in the, in the pioneer days and the settler days uh, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, whatever it would have been. And that was always an interesting thing to go and see and experience. And if you've done anything like that, you probably... Uh, walked away like I did and do even with kind of this idea of some nostalgia, you know, this idea, boy, life was just simpler back then, wasn't it? And, uh, you know, they, they didn't have all the stresses and the, uh, they, they didn't deal with all the issues that we deal with today and, and life was just kind of uh, easier in a lot of ways. And, and yet, when we look at our lives today, I think most of us would have to agree that our lives today are better than the, most of the settlers and pioneers had it. If you disagree with me, you are more than welcome to cut off your electricity and get rid of your car and go back to wearing only handmade clothes and things of that nature, but most of us don't. We like the conveniences and comforts of the world today, even though they're accompanied by some additional uh, burdens that we carry and stresses that maybe they didn't back then. But, but we look back and we kind of see that and we think, boy, wouldn't it have been nice to, 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 wouldn't it be nice for just a while to go back and live like that and we feel that somehow we would be a little bit more carefree. I think we probably are kind of mistaken uh, when we think that. But uh, either way, we get a, a glimpse into what life would have been like. This passage that we read here is a glimpse into what life was like in a church in the first century following the ministry of Christ. What must it have been like to be some of the first Christians to walk the face of this earth with the indwelling Holy Spirit, with uh, uh, the, 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 the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to carry forth the work of God. Uh, some of these people obviously personally knew the Lord Jesus as he walked on this earth and, and saw his ministry firsthand and and there had to have been a zeal and excitement about the things of the Lord that maybe we kind of miss today because we're so far removed from what life was like back then. And it certainly is true that we today, fast forward 2,000 years, don't live in the same era as they did. And our understanding of, uh, of God's expectation has been muddied and clouded by all kinds of denominational divisions and, 
and theological uh, heresies and departures from the Word of God. And then even among Bible-believing churches, sadly, we uh, have kind of adopted a somewhat, I think we could all agree, <clears throat> of a little bit of a kind of a lazy and casual Christianity, can I put it that way, uh, where we are very much concerned about our comforts and our schedules and, and having things just so. We put a lot of stock into our buildings and, and, and things like that. I'm not saying that all those things are bad, but, but we've kind of, I think, in many ways departed from really the core meaning of what it is to be a church. The reality is that, that uh, the, the biblical understanding of what a church is, we understand it's an assembly of baptized believers, but we would be every bit as much a church if we were gathered together today under a tree somewhere or meeting in someone's house and proclaiming the word of God. We'd be every bit as much of a church if we were even uh, kind of exiled somewhere as, as Christians throughout the centuries have been and, and, and had to go kind of underground to be able to assemble together and worship. And yet we, we often think of uh, what church life is like through the lens of what we're accustomed to and what we've kind of adapted as a culture. Now, I'm not saying that any of these things in and of themselves are wrong, but I, I do believe it's important for us to, to look back into the Word of God and see the example that God set to, to show us what a church should be like and what a church should do and help us to understand that these realities that are painted here uh, in Acts 2 as well as other places in the New Testament are really the things that are vital and important for a church, maybe even more so than some of the things that we would normally think of when we would think of uh, what's important for a church to do and to be. And so I want to just look at uh, this glimpse into first century church life with you today and consider some realities that they faced and lived with and uh, just challenge us a little bit today to maybe seek to be a little bit more like them. The first thing I want to point out to you is their authenticity. I want to show you that in verse number 42, it says, these people who were saved and were added to the church, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And the following verses go on to describe to us how radically their salvation had changed their lives. It changed everything about their lives. So much so that even the things that they did on a day-to-day -day basis were no longer the same. The people that they associated were with were different, and, and the, the way that they spent their time was different than it was before they got saved. And probably the greatest proof of the authenticity of their faith was the fact that they that gladly received his word continued steadfastly. In other words, this was not just some fleeting decision that was made in a moment of emotion. You know, we, we went to uh, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and there was a mighty moving of the Lord and the Holy Spirit was at work and, and, and we made a decision for Christ and we were all excited about it for a period of time, uh, maybe a few days or a few weeks and then that kind of wore off and we needed some other kind of highlight, another high note. We needed to go and, and be recharged again. It doesn't say that. 
It says that they that received his word were baptized and they were added to the church there. And what happened? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. They just continued doing what they knew God would have them to do. And on a daily basis, they were steadfast to obey the Lord. I think this is very important for us to understand that true biblical salvation is proven really in our, in our lifestyle after the moment of salvation. Now, I want to be clear, and I've said this before many times, that a changed life does not make you saved. You do not get saved by changing your life or cleaning up your life or becoming uh, a certain way. If I clean up my life, God's going to accept me. That is not at all what the Bible teaches about salvation. However, what the Bible does teach is that if you are saved, when you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and changes you, and you are no longer the same. There is a change that takes place, and that change is a lasting change. It's not something that just happens, and for a few weeks you're excited about it, and, 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 and you go on and, and continue in that for a while, and then eventually just kind of go back to your old ways and, and, and live out the rest of your life like a lost person. That's not at all what the Bible teaches about true, genuine, biblical salvation. There is a continuance that happens as a result of the indwelling Spirit of God. These people, when they got saved, it changed everything about them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were continuing in their prayer. They were continuing in their fellowship. In other words, because of the significant change in their life, they were going to remain faithful to the Lord. Did that mean that they would never sin again? No. Did it mean that they would never have a time or a season in their life where they got away from the Lord a little bit? No, but here's what it meant. That the change that happened in their life was real and authentic. That when they received Christ, everything changed. And they continued. In the face of persecution, several chapters later, we would find them continuing to serve the Lord. Even after being scattered to different parts of the known world at that time, they continued and remained faithful to the Lord. We can go back and read through history and find that these very people were faithful to the Lord, even to the point of death. Why? Not because of some willpower or endurance in them. Not because of a commitment that they made that they said, I'm never going to fall away. But because they were genuinely saved and the Holy Spirit kept them faithful. And so there was authenticity to their salvation. They remained faithful. But I want you to consider this also, that their, uh, their faith in the Lord was so real, it changed everything about them. In other words, it permeated and affected every area and aspect of their lives. Look with me, if you would, at verse number... Uh, uh, 46, it says, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. These people, after getting saved, began to meet with other Christian people, not once a week, not twice or three times a week, but every single day of the week, daily, they were continuing together in fellowship and in, in the study of the Word of God, praying together. Uh, it's impossible to be that committed to something without your entire life being changed. Think of one thing 
that, that you could possibly do that just today, okay, I guess I'm going to take up this particular hobby or, or, uh, uh, or I'm going to start doing this or that. And that means that I'm committing to every single day, seven days a week, being in this place with these people. Uh, most of us would, would say there's no way. I don't have the capacity to do that. I don't have the, the time to commit to being somewhere with the same people seven days a week or whatever. And I understand that. Life is busy. But what I'm trying to point out to you is that something happened to these people that was so significant that it altered the very course and direction of their life. Their involvement in church life was not something that they just did on the weekend. It wasn't just a part of their life. It wasn't just, uh, I guess I'll donate some of my time to charity and serve in church. No, this was something that was a radical change that affected every aspect and every area of their life. Their life now revolved around the Lord and His people. And folks, I believe that though we may not have the ability and the capacity to meet together seven days a week and you know we've got jobs and we've got families and things that we have to do I believe that if if our faith is authentic and real that the things that we do here ought to matter to us more than just I'll give an hour or two of my time during the week this this what we're doing here should be the most authentic thing you do all week this should be a reflection of what the rest of your week looks like. The way that you are today in church shouldn't be the exception, but it should be just simply a continuation of what God is doing in your life every single day. And maybe we can't gather together and assemble together every single day, but you know what? You ought to be praying for each other every day. You ought to be seeking to serve the Lord every day. Why? Because, <clears throat> because we are not simply here for the sake of practicing a religion. We're not here to go through a set of rituals. Folks, if I believed that the reason to come to church was just because it's the right thing to do or just because my religion dictates that that's what I do on Sunday, I don't think that would be enough to keep me here. Other things would be more important to me. But folks, I am here today because I believe that what we're talking about, this word, I believe this word right here is true. I believe the God of the Bible. I believe that Jesus came and died for my sins because that was my only hope of redemption. I believe that the sinless Son of God laid down His life for me and, and shed His blood that I could be saved. And I believe that that calls me to a higher purpose. I believe that it's, He is worthy, as we sang a moment ago, He's worthy of my worship and praise. He's worthy of honor and glory. He's worthy of my life. It's Him. We're not here just because it's something to do, because we want to you know, have a social club of friends that we can get together with and, and fellowship with. Folks, this ought to be real and authentic and come from a place of love for God. It was real. Look also in verse number 43. It says, And fear came upon every soul, and many uh, wonders and signs were done by the hands 
of the apostles. Look at verse 47. Praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I think so many people in churches, and, and even myself, I've been guilty of this before. We would desire to see a great moving of the Lord. We would desire to see... Uh, people being saved on a regular basis, like a daily basis, and, and, and not just you know, making blind professions of faith nowhere ever to be found, but people that are, are, are truly coming to Christ and being saved where we're able to see a, a changed lives for the glory of God and the church growing, to see the, the, just the moving of the Spirit of God. We want to see that. I, I desire that. But notice it says that fear came upon them. In other words, there was, a, there was an awareness of the severity and the reality of what was going on here. That they were in the very presence of the Lord and seeing Him work and move, and that was something that they did not take lightly. They were aware of His holiness and the seriousness of what they were doing and yes, God was at work, but they were not treating it casually. Folks, I, I believe that we ought never treat the house of God casually. We should never come here with a laid-back attitude that it doesn't really matter that I'm here or what we do here. There ought to be, to some degree, a sense of a a fear, a reverence, an awe of the greatness of our God that causes us to have some, some soberness about us in the house of the Lord. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with being happy and joyful and even joking with each other and, and, and cutting up a little bit. I think that's okay. I, I don't think that the Lord is against that. When I see in His Word, I, I believe that he, he wants us to be joyful and happy. But here's what, what I'm saying. I don't think that we should take it lightly. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You know what that tells me? His presence is with us today. And I don't think that we should approach a meeting like this with the same attitude that we would approach a ball game or a concert, or whatever, it else, whatever else it is you would do in your leisure time to relax and, and just enjoy. We don't come to church to enjoy it. We come to church to meet at the feet of the Lord. And there is enjoyment in that if you know the Lord, but that's not why we're here. We're here for Him, and there ought to be some reverence in what we do. Why? Because this is real. This is real. Fear came upon all of them. We see their authenticity, but I want to show you their accord. They were together in, in unity and in harmony. Let's look again at what it says in verse number 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 44, and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Here's what happened. When these people came to know Christ, 
He so radically changed their lives that they fell in love with him. And in falling in love with him, they also fell in love with his people. And it caused them to be unified together in such a way that when other people in the church had a need, there was no question what they were going to do. People that had more than others, they, they, they'd sell it if need be to meet the needs of someone else. Now listen, you might read that and think, well, that's socialism. No, the difference is socialism is imposed upon you, right? It's the government taking from someone, giving it to someone else. This is biblical charity, taking that which is mine and giving it of my own free will to someone else because I care about them and I love them and I'm trying to meet their needs. That's a difference. These people were so serious about serving God and, and loving His people that they were willing to sacrifice of their own goods to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters, to make sure that no one among them lacked. They were together in one accord. Folks, we, again, we, we've been talking about on Sunday nights the importance of being unified as a church body. And, and if we want to see the Lord at work, we, we need to have one mind and one heart and a, a common goal and purpose. Well, that's what was happening here. They were fellowshipping together. Again, on a daily basis, they were spending time together. They were eating together. This afternoon, we're going to go to a park and we're going to just hang out for a while together as a church. And I want you to know that, I, and this is not in any way to downplay this, what we're doing right here, the preaching of the Word of God or, or prayer meetings, nothing like that. Not to downplay this, but I, I want to say to you that what we are doing in our fellowship with one another is just as vital to the health of a church as is the preaching of the Word of God in prayer. It's not a substitute for those things, but it's equally important. This church was unified. They were fellowshipping together. They spent time together. Listen, I don't believe it was just, you know, okay, we're, we're together. Hey, what do you think of the weather today? And, you know, how are things in the family? And, uh, you know, just talking about politics and whatever else. Go with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter number 10. Here's the biblical concept of fellowship. Hebrews chapter 10. And most of us are probably familiar with verse number 25 that says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. But back up and uh, look at verse number 23. It says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And then it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Here's the biblical concept of fellowship. Not, hey, Bill, what do you think of the weather today? Hey, Bob, what's your, you know, what's your favorite sports team? That's not the biblical concept of fellowship. The biblical concept of fellowship is this. I have spiritual needs and you have spiritual needs, but together iron sharpens iron and we provoke one another to love and to good works. 
In other words, if I'm truly fellowshipping with you in the biblical way, I'm not only concerned about the temporal things in your life, though we might talk about those things and, and enjoy a little bit of chit-chat here and there, that's a fine thing, but my primary concern is for your spiritual health. And your primary concern ought to be for my spiritual health. And we, we ought to be encouraging each other in the Lord. I've been in churches where the only time that you ever hear any talk of Scripture is in a Sunday school class or in a preaching service like this. But all the other interaction between, and I don't know, I don't listen in on everything that the ladies talk about, but between the men, all the interaction is about sports and hobbies and work and, again, politics, whatever it might be. But, but listen, you can go to the world and get that stuff. You can go to the bar and get that kind of fellowship. Just be, be honest. But I've also been in churches where after church, before church, visitation days, church activities, the conversations are things like this. Hey, I was reading my Bible the other day and I saw this. What do you think of that? How, how do you understand, what, what do you understand this to mean? Boy, this was a real encouragement to me. Hey, uh, you know, this is a, a need in so-and-so's life. Maybe we can, we can uh, uh, pray for them together. Or we can go visit them together. Oh, hey, would you pray for me tomorrow because I'm meeting with someone to, to have a Bible study with them and, and, and try and share the gospel with them? And would you just pray for me to have boldness and for the words to say? And there are, I've been in churches that are like that where the fellowship is revolving around Serving the Lord and encouraging each other. And of the two, those two examples that I just gave, guess which one is more up uplifting for a Christian? We are to provoke one another to love and to good works. The fellowship that we have with one another should go beyond what, what the world could offer and help each other to grow in our love for the Lord and our obedience to Him. There was authenticity, and they were in one accord. But I want to show you where they put their attention. Look back with me, if you would, at Acts 2. Their attention, verse 42 again, says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine was primary. It was important. Now, you might think of doctrine, a lot of people think of doctrine, and they think of these, you know, thick volumes of commentaries and theology books, and, you know, doctrine is just for preachers and seminary students and things of that nature. But, but doctrine just simply refers to biblical truth. In other words, that they were putting a high priority on the Word of God. It was being taught. It was being preached from their pulpits. It was being discussed around dinner tables. It, it was being read and studied in their own personal lives. And they were continuing 
In doctrine, let me ask you, Christian friend, what priority do you place on the Word of God and doctrine? Are you seeking to grow in Him? Are you finding yourself in the Word of God, not only reading it, but meditating on it and, and growing in it on a day-to-day -day basis? We try to do our part here in feeding the Word of God. I'm commanded as a pastor to feed God's flock. I want to make sure that I'm doing that. I want to make sure that I'm faithful in preaching the Word of God and not man's opinion. I want to make sure that every time you come to the Lord's house that there's a table set for you to sit down and eat. Maybe at least to eat some appetizers that will encourage you to go home and, and do some feasting on the Word of God yourself. But here's the thing. What we do here on Sunday and Wednesday is not going to be enough spiritual food to help you grow and continue steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. You need to get into the Word of God. You need to make it a priority in your life. They continued steadfastly in doctrine, in fellowship. We saw that, but also notice it says at the end of verse 42, in prayers. In prayers. It wasn't just that the people, the members of the church there, individually prayed. I'm sure that they did. We're commanded to have a private prayer life. Jesus in Matthew 6 told us that we're to enter into our closet and pray before our Father in secret. And I hope that you have a secret life of prayer, one that is just between you and God and where you have fellowship with Him on a daily basis, talking to your Heavenly Father. You need to have a secret prayer life. But this isn't talking about a secret private prayer life. It says that they, plural, continued in prayers. That means that they corporately were praying together. You read through the book of Acts and you find over and over and over again the, the churches meeting together, Christians meeting together and praying. The next chapter you find Peter and John, uh, verse number 1. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. There was a time of day set aside for praying. And they together went. There was corporate prayer taking place. I believe that if we want God to bless our church, we want to see a moving of the work of God among us, prayer needs to be a priority, not an afterthought. It's something that we need to do together, regularly, commonly, meeting together, praying together, seeking His face together. Why? Because, listen, friends, it's not about what we can do in serving God. It's, what, it's about what we need Him to do. The only way souls are going to be saved, the only way that, 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 that our church is going to be able to reach the loss of this world. The only way that God is going to be glorified in us and through us is by His working among us. We need Him. We need God. They continued steadfastly in prayer. They also continued steadfastly in evangelism. How do I know that? Verse 47. 
What does it say? Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They were faithful to evangelize and reach the lost around them. Now you might look at that and say, well, pastor, didn't you notice that it says that the Lord added to the church? It wasn't the, the saints, it wasn't the apostles that were, were going out and reaching people. God was just working. That's, listen, read through the New Testament and show me one example of one person that came to know Christ apart from a personal witness. You know what I find? You fast forward to chapter 10 of the book of Acts and there's a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius was a, a Jewish man, but he had reverence and fear of God. And he spent a lot of time in prayer. And, 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 and by, by the world standards, he was a good man. He was trying to do that which was right, but he didn't know the gospel. He hadn't heard of Christ yet. And as he's seeking the Lord... The Lord in His mercy reaches down to him and, and He kind of extends an olive branch. You would think that maybe through this vision that, that Cornelius had that the Lord would say, okay, let me, let me explain to you the gospel. You're a sinner and Jesus came and died for your sins so that you could be saved. And you'd think maybe He would tell him how to get saved. He didn't do that. You know what the Lord did? He told them how to go find Peter. He said, send for Peter. And when Peter came, the Lord had told Peter, hey, you need to go with these men who are coming for you because I've got a job for you to do. You need to go and preach to this guy. You back up a chapter or two and you find this man that was a eunuch of Ethiopia seeking God, seeking truth reading in the, the book of Isaiah. He's sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah 53 where, where the Lord is speaking of the Messiah, being that suffering Savior. But the Lord doesn't just give him understanding that this is the Christ, that this is Jesus, you need to be saved. The Lord takes a man by the name of Philip, an evangelist, and he divinely guides and directs him there to this Ethiopian eunuch to take the word of God and explain it to him. And when he asks him the question, understandest thou what thou readest? What does the man say? How can I except some man should guide me? You know what we learn from this? The biblical pattern of souls being saved is through personal witness and preaching of the gospel. We don't just expect that if we're doing what we're supposed to do and, and living the way that God would have us to live, that our lifestyle is just going to win people over to Christ. Lifestyle doesn't save anyone. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It is the gospel that, that gets into people's lives, that convicts of sin, that, that shows them their need for Christ, and, and, and it's the power of God unto salvation. And so the very fact that the Bible says that the Lord was adding to the church, not annually, not monthly, but daily, such as should be saved, we can come to the conclusion that the people who were there were actively involved in witnessing to people around them. They were proclaiming the gospel. You go over to Acts 8 and you find that the church is scattered because 
of persecution, the persecution of Saul against the church. And, and there, what do we find? That, that they were scattered from Jerusalem. It says, except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the rest of the church was scattered across the known world. And then it says, and they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They were already faithful in witnessing. Folks, do you know what I believe are the marks of a healthy church? Well, it's a church that's unified, in, in accord with one another, fellowshipping together, encouraging one another, a church that places high priority on doctrine, the word of God, the preaching of his word, a church that places a high priority on prayer and seeking the Lord's face, and a church that places an emphasis on evangelism, reaching the lost. That's what they were doing. And the reward was God was blessing them with fruit. The church was growing daily. They were growing in number. Now, numbers aren't everything. In fact, I don't believe that our focus ought to be numbers. How many people can we get in the building? But is it possible that numerical growth, particularly that being souls coming to know Christ as their Savior, could be a sign of a healthy church? These things were happening. The church was functioning as it should, and souls were being added. Now, just because a church is growing doesn't mean that it's healthy. And I don't know that I can say that just because a church isn't necessarily growing as fast as we'd like to see it to grow means that it's unhealthy, but I do think that there might be a correlation with a church being what it ought to be and people coming to know Christ. The Lord rewarded them. Now, there's a few things I want to point out about this. First of all, it was the Lord that added to the church. In other words, though the people themselves had to have been faithful in witnessing, it is not our job to save souls. That's the work of the Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And any time a soul is saved, we know that that is a work of God. That's important. Secondly, growth was the product of a healthy church, it was not the purpose of their programs. Let me say that again. Growth was the product of a healthy church, it was not the purpose of their programs. In other words, they didn't say, you know what we need to do? Because we need to see more people saved, because we want to see the church grow, we're going to do this, 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 and this. I think we start down a dangerous road when we start planning our methods and our programs and the things that we're doing around the idea, because we want to see people saved, we're going to do this. I think what we need to do is this. Here's what God wants for us to do and be. We're going to be that. And trust that God is going to bless us with fruit for simply being obedient to Him. 
Now that doesn't mean that we sit back and we, we don't try and reach the lost. Because God's commanded us to do that. We are to take the gospel to the world. We're to take the gospel to every creature. And so we need to be aggressive in that. We ought to go after souls. But what I'm saying is I don't think that a, a healthy church is one that says, okay, what can we do to get more people through our doors? Because it's a very, very small jump from that to saying, how do I please these people who've come through the doors? And I will tell you from the standpoint of a preacher who often puts his foot in his mouth and says things that probably upset some people, it's very easy to be preaching and wondering what so-and-so over here thinking what are they thinking? And oh, by the way, that first-time visitor that's sitting in the back, what are they thinking about this? But folks, our, our job is not to please people. Our job is to please the Lord. And we cannot, we cannot make our decisions based on what can we do to get more people in. Our decisions have to be based on this. What does God want? First and foremost, what does God want? And then we trust that when things are the way God wants them to be, that God will give the fruit that He wants to give in His time. And so we consider this today with their authenticity. What they did was real. It was meaningful in their lives. It was, they were serious about serving God they were together in one accord and they were giving attention to doctrine and to prayer and to evangelism and the, the Lord awarded them with fruit for their labors. Now here's the application part of this message today because it's easy to look at a church as a whole and see, okay, this is a healthy church we want to be a healthy church. Or even, are we a healthy church? Or yes, I think we are a healthy church. Whatever the case is. But here's what we need to understand. Churches are not made up of, it's not, not just an organization, it's made up of individuals. That means that you need to be what God wants you to be in order for this church to be what God wants it to be. So when we consider what a healthy church looks like, what we really need to consider is, are these things present in my life? And as a member of this body, as a member of this church, am I contributing in the way that the Lord would have me to do so? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning I pray that you would help us, Lord. I thank you for this church, Lord. I thank you for working here throughout the years. I thank you for the health of this church. I thank you, Lord, that you've uh, <clears throat> blessed in such a way that, Lord, there is doctrinal integrity and truth. And so many of the things that we, we talked about today are consistent with the way we do things around here. But, Father, I think we all have room to admit probably some areas that we've drop the ball on some things and maybe not really been as committed to your will and your purpose for us 
as you would have us to be. And so I pray, Father, that you would uh, just help us to really examine our hearts before you, that as we look at our church and we kind of ask that question, um, are we what you want us to be? Would you help us, Lord, to be very honest about our condition? And Lord, if there's something that needs to change, then, then would you show us, Lord, and help us to make that right so that we can be what you want us to be and, Lord, you can use us to reach the lost all around us. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.